It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's found a plug-in for Chrome that duplicates the functionality of NoScript, which you know he loves for Firefox. We'll talk about ScriptNo and a bug in a security camera that makes it possible for anybody to see what you're doing anytime without a password. It's coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 339, recorded February 8th, 2012. Scriptno for Chrome. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, privacy, uh, security, everything you need to know about keep it safe online with this fellow here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Gibson. Oh, I, my new moniker. Explainer, explainer in chief. chief. And you I told me like your middle that. initial last week and I forgot about it. Jay? That's just as well. Oh. M. <laughs> M. Stephen M. Doesn't that sound a little bit more... Stephen M. It sounds a little more serious. Yeah, I... The, the, we uh, back when I was at the AI lab at Stanford. You know, when I was in high school, I was working at Stanford's artificial intelligence lab, and you used your initials as part of your logon. SMG. And so my initials were SMG, and so like they that. called me Smog. Oh, I so, love that. Oh, that's wonderful. Smog, Smog Gibson is here. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a coolie as they as they termed it. You know, how fun! It, that was when they thought artificial intelligence was going to change the world. Oh, it's going to be easy. Yeah, yeah you no just got just got to write some programs and we'll, you know, these things are going to start thinking any moment now. Simple, simple, simple. Didn't turn out what we, what, I mean, it was we who got the education, not the computers. You know, it was True. people who thought this was not hard. We learned, whoa, there's more going on here than we thought. But, you know, and that's always the case. I was telling someone just the other day who had a great idea for an internet startup and wanted my opinion about it. I, I told him a little bit about he was not. He's not a security now watcher. So he found me because he's actually the stepson of an ex girlfriend, and um, who graduated and had an idea for an internet startup. And yeah. I told him a little bit. Of, I sort of paraphrased the portable dog killer episode and how what we learned, what I learned from that, and the takeaway message that I shared with our audience was: you, nothing is going to happen if you're just sitting around playing video games. It's when you when you Try to do something, even if you think you know how, even if you think, hey, this is, you know, I'm just going to go do this, you know, like, and this is exactly what happened in the AI world was we all thought we knew how to, you know, program a computer to play world-class chess or navigate a little robot cart around the parking lot. That was my first introduction to the lab was as I was turning up the, in, into the driveway, there was a sign, a warning sign that said, caution, robot vehicle in use. And this was in 19 this was in 1972. That's impressive. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Yeah. I was like you're kidding me. So, you know, that was the beginning of several years of a lot of fun. 
Uh, and, 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 learned, and as you say, learning, because we found out you can't do it or it's not as easy yeah, as, you, as you thought. It's like, it oh, well, you know, digitize the video and then we have a picture and now let's do some, you know, edge uh, enhancement. Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, model the area and and have the computer know where we are. And it's like, oh, boy, when you start, you know, it's oh, it's easy to say, but when you. When you turn it into details, it's when you start thinking, oh, wait a minute, there's something I didn't think of. Oh, I didn't think of that. And I didn't think of that. And I didn't think of that. And that just, you know, that goes recursive. So, yeah. <laughs> you can never think of everything. Although I did meet with a an avid listener to our podcast, actually, uh, a friend of ours. Maybe you know Evan Katz. Do you know of Evan? Uh, I sure do, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Evan is a neat guy. And turns out he follows, um, among many things, computer-based chess. Mm. And so I got a complete tune-up. We had we had a uh, lunch for a couple hours a few months ago, actually over the holidays. Or I guess it was over Thanksgiving. And um, and he knew all about the state of the art in computer chess, which I hadn't been following for years. And it was fascinating that we've come you know, a long way, baby. Let oh, me tell you, my goodness, and it's all just in software now. It's yeah. all programs. Yeah. No one's you know, building big rooms full of custom chess playing hardware. It's, you know, our standard, you know, Intel core, whatever processors uh, are, and the algorithms. They're so fast. Yeah, they, I mean, and now the, the, the humans are out of it. It's no longer oh, yeah. about it. It's, it's oh, yeah. pitting the, the software against each other. You can buy we, a pretty damn good uh, pro program yes. that's a, a grandmaster quality program that runs on your PC just fine. And I don't know how I feel about that, Leo. You know I mean, well, it's be, brute force. That's the thing. Yeah, it's not, I, it's, yeah, exactly. I I grew up playing chess with a, a grandfather of mine and really enjoyed the game. And it would I, I and chess. You know, I'm coming back to the game is sort of something I have. I'm thinking of. I'll do. You know, <laughs> after I unplug myself. Hey, you and this. I should play a game. I didn't know you were a chess chess man. Well, but believe me, it's been a long time. Well, that's for me, too. My, my, I was pretty serious in uh, high school. I played in tournaments. I played in the U.S. Open the day before my wedding. I was very serious about this thing. Yeah, well, it's a fantastic game. It's a wonderful game, and it did so, take some of the steam out of it when it, we found out that a computer could beat us. Yeah, and so now I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, I don't have anyone who's you know in my neighborhood who's who's fun to play or does play so but you know but i got technology coming out of my ears but how does that feel to just you know be like playing a game you know you can't win and it wouldn't be that so much i, I you know my ego's fine you play humans you can't beat either yeah yeah you know, and in fact my grandfather was way better than i was and i spent the first many years Really being <laughs> just having the stuffing beaten out of me, but then That's the time began to yeah, turn a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But so, so the point is that I, I wouldn't mind losing if I knew that I was losing to another human brain rather than you know algorithms that are looking at this thing and going <laughs> mate in twenty six. It's like right. oh okay, what's the fun there? So well, it did, yeah, I mean what we learned. What we didn't know at the time was that chess uh, turns out to be solvable, a solvable problem with enough, given enough yeah. RAM. It's mostly, I think it's mostly about uh, calculation speed and, and sufficient RAM to store the positions, but uh, it's solvable. Now, interestingly, and by the way, you and I, we're going to start playing chess. Do you, you have a smartphone, right? We could, we could play chess, uh, chess with friends. You and I can play head-to-head -head over the Internet. 
Oh. I'll play you a game. But but now, if you're interested, turns out that the most intransigent, intransigent game is Go. The Japanese mm. game of Go. That one, which is so, like, visually simple by it's comparison. It's all pattern it's little, matching. It's and, little stones. And it turns out that it's computationally so intensive. Uh, mm. You know, of course, it is also pure calculation, and a sufficient brute force will solve it. But they cannot make a Go, play, a Go machine that even plays nearly as well as the as moderate level professionals in other words it won't go it won't it don't go, <laughs> don't go. it's i think it's fascinating uh, go, and you know uh, it's just there's it's combinatorially too complex so they can't wow. yeah wow. it's a you know it's it is a great subject i gave a lecture on one of the mac mania cruises about chess playing machines it's a fascinating story yeah but and and is, how in the old days they there there used to be cheaters there was like little midgets hiding yeah, underneath the, the, the table. They call it the mechanical uh, Turk, <laughs> and it was a guy in it. It was a very good player. He built. He beat some of the crowned heads of Europe, and they thought and it was I guess a robot. There was enough. There was enough clockwork right. uh, obfuscation on the outside that it it, would, it convinced experts who stared into it and thought, scratched their heads and thought, "No kidding." Well, I guess you just got to get the gears in the right it was place. A good magic trick. There. That's all. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about. Scriptno. Well, yes. Our <laughs> our main topic is my I I did a deep dive into a browser extension. And our listeners know that I don't do that often. I did it with LastPass and the results were stellar. And I'm really glad I did. That was a great investment of my time and learning. I did it with no script for Firefox because and we know how I feel about scripting in browsers. Well, one of the things that has sort of kept put me off of Chrome a little bit is that there wasn't anything that gave Chrome users the same kind of control with Chrome. You can, I believe, I'm sure I knew once that you could turn scripting off completely in Chrome, but if you do that, then nothing works. And there was for a while an extension called not script mm -hmm. which didn't do anything really i mean it just didn't work very well it didn't have very little functionality i think it was something someone you know did and then sort of abandoned well script no is recently created is being actively developed by a neat uh recent college graduate in toronto hmm. uh who's who knows us and has followed GRC and, and my work for years, it turns out. I didn't learn that until he responded uh, with thanks to a donation that I sent to him to support his work. And the more I've played with it and poked at it, the more I've been impressed and liked it. So today is for everyone who feels as I have. Oh, and in fact, this is why Andrew created it. He was a Firefox 3 user. Then he upgraded, as we all did, to Firefox 4 and watched the memory just bleed out of Firefox without end. And he was also an Opera. And then he, 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 he's, he's very pro-Google. In fact, uh, sent on an application for employment to Google that has never been Google Toronto or Google Canada or something that, it, that they've never responded to. So if, if there's anyone within reach of this podcast uh, – at Google Canada, um, there's a very talented seeming uh, person who would be interested in 
uh, getting a word back from you. What a good Google way to get that. a job. Yeah. Just write an amazing uh, extension for Chrome. It's Well, anyway, so I'm going to talk about that. It's got more features in some useful ways than NoScript. It tells you more about what's going on, which I know our listeners will like. Just mm-hmm. by hovering your mouse over things, You, it, it's there's there's... You know, the kind of information I want to have and the kind of controls that that, that uh, is nice to have. So essentially, we've got really good – and it's not just scripting. It's objects. So it's, you know, Java objects, embedded stuff, Flash, images, um, uh, you know, the whole panoply. So that's our main topic. But we've also got some news. And that might not seem like a lot to talk about, but there's one really intriguing – Disaster <laughs> <laughs> of the week. Our disaster. A, I'll get an echo effect ready for you. That'd be good. Oh goodness! Uh, with a with a horrible vulnerability in a widely deployed webcam that that has is without its owners knowing it is horribly violating oh the privacy of everyone who has it without their knowledge because it turns out you don't need to log on and there's a search engine that finds them all for you. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, it's great stuff. Well, <laughs> let me briefly and it's not going to take very much time because I uh, I want to get right to the meat of the matter, but I did I did want to mention our friends at uh, New Tech. They do the TriCaster 850, which is the switcher that I'm using right now that allows us to uh, handle up to eight inputs, high def, record, because we have the TriCaster 850 Extreme, record each input uh, separately, ISO'd, onto the, at the same time, eight at once, so you could do a later remix if you wanted. Uh, it's got great transition effects like this. Wow. Actually, let me give you the, uh, the audio on this, because this is an audio transition. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> We have a lot of fun. This is one that we uh, used uh, for uh, Mac Break Weekly uh, yesterday. Oh, no, that wasn't the money shot. There's a money shot in here somewhere. Well, anyway, you can see. Ah, we, <laughs> we have a lot of fun with the TriCaster. Uh, there are all sorts of models to fit every budget. This is the top of the line, and I'm really glad we have it. And we want to thank our friends at New Tech for making it possible. NEWTEK.com. When I first started doing Twit, and I realized we're going to have to have more than just a Logitech quick cam pointed at my nose uh, we had to find a switcher that we would be able to use 24 7 to be completely flexible robust and yet affordable to a starting guy starting out spending his own money for a podcast and that's when i decided on new tech and i've never looked back and we continue to use new tech today newtek.com the tricaster it is uh, something we could not do twit without Just we might want to. <laughs> Sometimes you might want uh, to. So one of the things I like about you, Leo, is you've been in the business long enough that you've learned you don't have to press all of the buttons. <laughs> right. During it's like, a single during a single podcast. It's like when laser printing first started and they used twenty four fonts, including like the worst, you know, ransom typeface fonts in a <laughs> newsletter. And finally we got well, we wised up and we were like, Oh yeah, you don't really have to do that. You could just switch cameras. That's all. Yeah. So uh, let's talk. What do you got? Okay, so uh, we're keeping an eye, a background eye, on 
the so-called NSTIC. I've talked about this a few times. This is the so-called national, that's the acronym for the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, which is the current administration's determination, which is well-meaning to to solve the problem somehow of, of trust in cyberspace. That is, you know, how do we authenticate people? If, if we're going to be an internet-based world, truly, and more business is going to go on the net and more commerce is going to go on the net and more, you know, the world is going to go on the net, we, we need to come up with a robust um, authentication system for people. You know, and we've, this is a topic that we have talked about often. I'm passionate about it. It's the reason that, that Stina and Yubico with her YubiKey are, were so interesting. And we've talked about the, 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 um, the VeriSign football and e-ink cards and one-time passwords and all this stuff. You know, in the, in the physical world, we know each other. We see each other. We recognize each other. And we can believe that we're talking to something that we know a website that we know or that a, that, a, that a website knows it's talking to one of its users. But as we also know, there's all kinds of ways, I mean, for, for that to fail. It's incredibly challenging to do that. So the NIST is the organizing body behind this, the National Institute of Standards and Technology that's been around forever. And I'm on the, the, I'm on the inside of this stuff because – you know, I'm interested in, in what's going to happen and how it's going to go. And so I received a notification of some progress. And I thought, oh, oh I, you know, this will, you know, what? This could be great. Well, then I realized just how slowly turning the wheels of the bureaucracy are. Um, Jeremy Grant is the senior executive advisor of identity management at NIST. So this falls, as you'd expect, under identity management. There is such a, a division. And he said in his note, I'm pleased to announce the publication of a new NIST report entitled <clears throat> Recommendations for Establishing an Identity Ecosystem Governance Structure. <laughs> Just the name is, scares. Oh. Oh my goodness! So this, this, these are this is a fifty-one page PDF with ah. recommendations for how to establish an identity ecosystem government governance structure. So yeah, the the upshot is we need we need to keep working on this ourselves, Leo. This is not going to get solved anytime soon. Well, you know, on the other hand, I some centralized system and the NIST be the right ones to do it. I think well, it does seem necessary. Yes, yes. You, and, you don't want Google or Microsoft doing this, uh, although they've been trying. Well, and I don't mind their input, but but on the, on the uh, agreeing with you that taking this slowly, this is an important thing, and we know that there are. I mean, th this is a hard problem to solve because the the tighter you make the the authentication of someone's identity, the harder a problem you have with the flip side, which is anonymity and privacy, both of which people have a right to and 
and covet and cherish as right. they should. Google went and, right up against this with their name policy on Google Plus, and and it bit them in the butt. Yep. And look what we just went through with SOPA and PIPA, where legislation just appeared in Congress and asked for votes with nothing like this kind of of careful. We're gonna we're, we're gonna take this thing through. We're gonna make sure what what comes out the other end is useful and not you know not something that just immediately enrages the world the way SOPA and PIPA did. So, um, I, you know, I will. Uh, Keep an eye on it, and I will uh, be informing our listeners as this thing moves forward uh, where we stand with it. Thank you. Um, there's some really encor- encouraging news that Brian Krebs reported on his blog. Since he covered it so thoroughly, I didn't go any further. And so I'll just quote from what he wrote. He wrote that Adobe has released a public beta version of its Flash Player software for Firefox that forces the program to run in a heightened security mode sandbox. Yay! Design, yay is right. Designed to block attacks that target vulnerabilities in the software. Then Brian goes on to say, sandboxing is an established security mechanism that runs the targeted application in a constrained, confined environment that blocks specific actions by the app such as installing or deleting files or modifying system information. The same technology has been built into the latest versions of Adobe Reader 10, and it has been enabled for some time in Google Chrome, which contains its own integrated version of Flash. But this is the first time sandboxing has been offered in a public version of Flash for Firefox. And I will note that it has succeeded in Adobe Reader 10. That is, the most recent problems, those exploits, which were critical and immediately exploited, Adobe had to scramble around in order to protect the users who had not yet updated to Reader 10 or Acrobat. But they were able to, to relax over on, 10, on, over on the Reader 10 side and only update the problem with their standard quarterly patch cycle because the sandbox that that they developed held and it it worked so the idea that that we're going to get flash sandboxed for firefox as it already is in chrome that's just really good news so it's in public beta at this point um and i again we'll keep our eye on it and i'll certainly let people know uh, I imagine what will happen is it'll simply be, as soon as it comes out of beta, it'll be a, a version update for Flash, the, 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 the instance of Flash, which is used in Firefox, and then all Firefox users will, will just get the benefit from it. So Yay. that's really cool. Yay. We had a, um, a, an interesting breakthrough in storage capacity and speed. Uh, some of the headlines were a little bit maybe over the top, saying that a new disk storage technology could store 200 gigabits per second. So, wait a minute, 200 maybe, gigabits per second? 200 gigabits per second. So that's like 20 plus gigabytes a second. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy that's talk. Way fast. Yeah. Well, so, it, however, I was curious, so I drilled down, and I thought our, our listeners who 
have an interest in disks and storage technology and and so forth how they have have identified it there's a, a, a there's a a metal called gadolinium whose symbol is gd it's a silvery white um lanthanoid See, i think metal. you're making this up now with an atomic number of 64. I kid you not. Gadolinium? Gadolinium. Gadolinium. All right. Gadolinium. Okay. G-A-D-O-L-I-N-I-U-M. Gadolinium and iron were, were combined. And in yesterday's issue, just published on February 7th, yesterday's issue of Nature Communications carried the very technical report uh, titled Ultrafast Heating as a sufficient stimulus for magnetization reversal in a fairy magnet. Now, this is a, an amazing yeah. team of scientists in the UK, Spain, Switzerland, Japan, Ukraine, Russia, and the Netherlands. Conspicuously missing, unfortunately, is the United States. So, I don't, I mean, you know, we need to up our science education, I think, in this country. Um, anyway, the, the, um, the summary at the top of this article says the question of how and how fast magnetization can be reversed is a topic of great practical interest for the manipulation and storage of magnetic information. And in fact, just stopping for a second, that's one of the problems with storing data fast on a magnetic surface is it, it takes time to, under a magnetic influence, to collapse the existing field and reverse that that direction of magnetization which is what's necessary for changing what's recorded on the disk so so there's a there, there's a clear a clear sort of inertia almost it, you have to the, the magnetic field is self reinforcing and it fights change the reason magnetic fields fights change fight change is the reason you can generate electricity with them it's 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 that it, it takes energy to make that change and you're able to capture that and spit out electricity. So, you know, it's all in, in fact, that's what an inductor does. You know, you have a, a, um, a, a ferro, um, a ferrous rod of some sort and you wrap wire around it and it, you, it when you run current through it, it builds up a magnetic field and it resists a change to that flow of current which is the reason inductors are used in power supplies in order to smooth out the, 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 the flow of power. They actually store that energy and resist its change. So anyway, uh, going on, it says it is generally accepted that magnetization reversal should be driven by a stimulus represented by time non-invariant vectors, such as a magnetic field, spin-polarized electric current, or the cross product of two oscillating electric fields, of something, we, of course, we all knew. <clears throat> However, until now, it has been generally assumed that heating alone, not represented as a vector at all, cannot result in a deterministic reversal of magnetization, although it may assist this process. Here we show numerically and demonstrate experimentally, they've actually done this in the lab, a novel mechanism of deterministic magnetization reversal in a fairy magnet driven by an ultra-fast, and we're talking ultra-fast, I'll cover that in a second, heating of the medium resulting from the absorption of a sub-P 
picosecond laser pulse without the presence of a magnetic field. Okay, so turning that a little bit more into English, what these guys have done is they are they are using a, a an incredibly short pulse of coherent optical radiation from a laser. The duration is 100 femtoseconds, Leo. Now, what's a femto? That's like a, a billionth, a trillionth. It's okay, we got, we got, we know, we we know that milli is a thousand. Yeah. Then we've got micro is a million. Yeah. Nano, Nano is a billion. Yeah. Pico mm. is a trillion. Yeah. Femto is next. <laughs> so that's a one thousandth of a femto is one thousandth of a pico, and so so this is one hundred femtoseconds. So this is short. And, and thus the reason for the somewhat um, overly dramatic recording speeds, because they're saying, well, if you can write a pulse in a femtosecond, then how many of those can you fit on the head of a pin? Um, or <laughs> Something. <laughs> and so forth. Anyway, so the, uh, one doctor, Dr. Alexei Kimmel from the Institute of Molecules and Materials in uh, Radboud University was quoted for this saying, for centuries it's been believed that heat can only destroy the magnetic order. Now we've successfully demonstrated that it can, in fact, be a sufficient stimulus for recording information on a magnetic medium. The technique is still a long way from being able to match conventional hard disk drives in terms of cost and ease of manufacturing due to the use of the laser and specialized materials. You know, that gadolinium, you got to come up with a bunch of that. But the team is now refining the technique and feels it has scope for full production. So, so what do we get? So we, so we, we, get, <laughs> we get terabytes are no longer a challenge because yeah. we will have femto-somethings. <laughs> Something rather. <laughs> and these things will suck in data. So, I mean, you don't, you don't even have to bother trying to decide what to record and not. You just, you know, record everything all at once, all the time. Wow. And it will never fill up, and you, you can never do it too fast. Wow. So it's, we're basically, we're getting we're there. Getting down toward molecular level recording is, you know, and, and, and playback. Wait, is, is it, it's a, it will look like a solid state device, kind of, sort of? Apparently, well, no, it, it is. It it I mean it spins. We, we, we see we see, yes we see over and over that a disc is a, an efficient way of presenting repetitive material to a head. You know, discs always win out over tapes. For example, historically, we keep trying to do tapes, and we always come back to discs. We even you know remember the eight tracks that we had in our cars yeah, for yeah. a while. T- tape is too slow to act random access. Yeah, and so so it'll it would be a disc, and it would. You know, they have to figure out how to read it back out again. Um, but it can certainly record a phenomenal amount of data. Basically, it it hugely increases the the storage density on a disk surface and the speed at which it can be laid down. So that's very cool. Yeah, very interesting. And and how far off you think this is from the? Oh, well, this is further off than any of these other yeah. new solid state technology yeah. we've been talking about. Okay. I mean, if and and the problem is of course cost and it's not clear 
<laughs> what you need this for? Right. I mean, it's like, okay. Well, oh, so- we'll find something. Believe me. Yeah. That's not going to be the problem. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> if you build it, we will we'll use we it. Will, we will fill it. <laughs> we will fill it. That's it. That's so, the slogan right there. I have a one-liner here just to note for any people who don't know that the Chrome browser is now available for ice cream sandwich Android. Yeah. So I got to find one of them. And is Ice Cream Sandwiches Android version 4? Yeah. So it's okay. the only phone right now that uh, uses it is the uh, Galaxy Nexus, which I do have. Uh, and then uh, somewhere. And then uh, some tablets use it. <laughs> um, do you know whether, is it the Droid 4, I think it is, that Verizon's going to be coming out with? No. Nothing, nothing that is currently announced comes out with Ice Cream Sandwich yet. No kidding. Except for the Galaxy Nexus, which is a Google phone. So it's it's but, got a private, okay. private place. But, but uh, those be, tablets are coming be, out with it. Will they be upgradable to it? Yes. most Almost anything you buy today will be upgradable. Not a lot of what you have from yesterday will be. Yeah, I don't have anything yesterday. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. No, I well, but I don't know I, if it's I don't know if that's anything to jump up and down about. We've been talking about it for a long time. But it's all WebKit, so I'm not really sure what the... Well, what I did read was that from reviewers who were using it, they were jumping up and down, saying okay. they're not going back to the oh, original good. browser. Well, in that would be Android. nice. All right. They said that, that that there was a ton of innovation in this in the tab handling. I mean, a lot of it didn't make any sense to me because I don't have the I don't have right. existing experience with the with the current Android browser. But uh, apparently. You know, it's like, why didn't they do this sooner? And so they've done it now, and that seems like a good thing. Especially if you'll be able to run Scriptno on it, which we'll talk about in a second. In other Chrome and Google news, a one of the Google security guys surprised people recently by saying that they're going to remove all SSL revocation checking from Chrome. Now... I consider that reasonable. We've talked about endlessly SSL certificates and certificate authorities and so forth. And remember that when when we've had these disastrous breaches of certificate authorities that we've covered in the recent past, actually, where, you know, a bunch of certs escaped or were were created without their knowledge what in fact the browser manufacturers did was build those build knowledge of the revoked the now revoked certificates into the browser itself that's how we found out actually what was going on was some sharp-eyed researchers noticed by comparing deltas of of source code that's whoa wait a minute what are all these Certificates have been added to the browser's own do not believe these certificates list. And and in fact, um, I can't remember now who, because it was it was Chrome who had this. Oh, it was Mozilla. Mozilla got upset because they didn't they weren't in the loop and weren't informed of this as quickly as IE and um and uh Google were. But anyway, so r- what we have now is in the in the certificate which is signed is a URL which is which goes to a server maintained by the signer of the certificate which allows a browser to check 
in real time for to to check in real time to verify that the certificate hasn't been revoked by the authority that signed it remember that that certificates have a have a coupled year sometimes one sometimes two sometimes three but no longer than three they have an expiration so one of the i mean it's 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 an annoyance that certificates expire because it means that those of us who who have and maintain certificates are being continually it feels like forced to renew our certificates the the one of the nice things about that is that we're from a standpoint of the people relying on the validity of those certificates is that we we are forced to renew them meaning we have to go jump jump through hoops re reverify our identity um so show that we're still around pass some some security checks and so forth in order to get the certificate renewed from the browser's standpoint if the only mechanism that exists is expiration then clearly there and, and the the designers of the system realized there's a time horizon of vulnerability from the time that a certificate were was compromised if that happened to the time that that certificate expires so the reason we don't want to issue certificates that last 100 years is then they would never go away they would never die and if it were if that certificate was ever compromised then we'd be in trouble essentially what that would mean is that all all technology that relied or might be called upon to rely on that certificate would be forced to know it that is it would have to be built into all of our browsers for 100 years so the beauty of the of the short multi-year expiration is that for example even in the case of of that I was talking about a second ago where all those certificates escaped control of the signer of them uh that was digi notar you may remember that whole Di- digi notar debacle they escaped their control well all of those certificates even though they're they're maliciously created and cannot be trusted they they will absolutely be expiring within a couple years so that means that the browsers only need to maintain their 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 internal knowledge never to trust a certificate with this serial number until it otherwise expires because then they wouldn't trust it anyway and they don't need to keep specific knowledge of that certificate so so because the designers of this whole system recognized there was still this vulnerability window they created the notion of a revocation where the certificate contains a url pointing back to a server maintained by the signer and the browser if it wants to in real time verify the trust can reach out and query the the revocation server to see if this particular certificate that's been signed by by that authority and was just received from a, typically from a foreign website i mean like that is to say a website somewhere else not, not not necessarily in a different country um verify that it is not revoked now there's problems with that several actually one is that this 
slows down everything. Anytime you use SSL and the, and the, and the browser is running at maximum security, it's going to, during the, the initial establishment of a connection, when it receives the SSL certificate from the, from the remote server, before it does anything else, if it's going to honor this level of, of integrity checking, it must then create a new connection, which also must be unspoofable. So that's got to be SSL to the URL contained in that certificate specifically to check and ask if it has been revoked since it was issued and before it has expired. Well, the problem is revocation servers are not reliable. They're also not fast. And if you ever turn your browser into a check revocation before doing anything else, you will uncheck it before long because yes. it's painfully <laughs> slow. It just everything. And, and remember that browsers are not doing a single connection to get a page. They're getting that first page and that page is littered with other resources that they then have to go and reach out and get. And if those all if those other resources are not all also SSL, then you get the horrible mixed content warning, warning you that some of the things your page is trying to get are not secure, even though the page is. Well, that freaks out users. And so nobody wants to give their their have their web pages cause that, which means all the other connections leaping out of your browser to go get pieces of the page have to also be SSL. And if they're coming from different servers, all of them have to have their certificates checked for revocation. And the bigger concern or a, an equal concern to performance is privacy. Because now notice that, that your system is making a connection to a revocation server. So they know your IP and they know what certificate you're asking about. So anyone monitoring those revocation servers knows you by IP at least and where you're trying to go. So that creates privacy concerns. And it turns out that in the event that a connection is not received from any revocation server, the browsers all fail in, in the trusting direction. That is... Well, that's they, wrong. Of course it's wrong. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, it does, so it doesn't work anyway. Oh, that's... The, forget it then. Okay, never you go mind. through all this... And then you still don't get protected because if the if they, if they don't answer the phone, it's like oh well, it's probably uh, fine. Yeah, and, I'm sure it's know, okay. Give them their page. Yeah, <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> that that is that just temporary until like this is widely adopted. I mean, is there some reason? No, Google's, Google's taking it out. No, this has always been there. Oh, and well, no there wonder. is a setting in Firefox which is off by default, which where you can say, uh, "Do not display do not display pages." Unless we we get a, a affirmative verification of non-revocation, and it's like don't turn that on because I mean you'll think what happened. I mean it's just it's yeah. ridiculous. And so so the browser I don't even know what would happen if later on it came back as revoked. I mean maybe a new kind of warning comes up, but you know we've never seen that before because what happens is if the browsers are being asked to wait too long, then they just go oh well it's probably fine. 
So <laughs> I, I salute Google. The I internet think must this be is... broken. It's uh, it's not it's not could be, couldn't be anything wrong with a certificate or anything. <laughs> anyway, so what Google said is that they're going to do what they've already done, and they're going to rely on automatic updates. I mean, that's Good. what Chrome does. Chrome is already updating itself all the time. That's the way they handled the DigiNotar problem, was they immediately added knowledge of the revoked certificates to the browser, and it just knows not to not not to believe any of those. And since the certificates die after a couple of years, they'll, it'll be a constant pruning process. After the certs die, they can remove right, them right. because then the browser won't trust them as because the date stamp will say this has been expired. So I, I think it's it's an interesting change. Um, it, it's th- this is an example of a problem that did not have a good solution. It, you know, you need to issue these for a while, and you hope that nothing happens bad in the meantime. And in fact, I had an experience once where I don't remember now why, but I needed I wanted to reissue a GRC certificate. This was like five or six years ago. And and so the the VeriSign who I was using was happy to let me fix something that was wrong with my cert. I don't remember now what it was. And they revoked the one that was only a few days old. And, oh boy, I started getting questions from people saying, hey, why is your certificate revoked? And it's like, what? Uh, ooh. I mean, so, you know, mm. somebody somebody was noticing that a certificate was revoked. This And, and, and Verisite had to issue, had to add it to the, the certificate revocation list because, you know, it was it was no longer valid, even though it was still me and it was fine. But they had issued a replacement for it for whatever reason. So it's like, ouch! You know, there are some consequences to right. that. And right. so I think what Google's doing is is a good thing. Um, a group of industry leaders, uh, Google, well, including Google, Microsoft, Facebook, LinkedIn, AOL, PayPal, and Yahoo, among others have formed an organization uh, and a new spec called DMARC, DMARC. I like the uh, name. Good name. Stands for Domain-Based Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance. Hmm. And it's the site is DMARC.org, D-M-A-R-C.org. Um, what this is, is a an agreement finally about email authentication. So this is good news. Um, We've had two standards that we've never covered in the podcast because they've sort of annoyed me and I've been waiting for something to shake out. Well, and so it finally has. And so we'll do a podcast shortly to explain what this is. We had the SPF, the sender policy framework. And then, uh, and some people sort of went with that. And then the alternative of a technology was domain keys, which Google, among others, famously went with. And that was called DKIM, which stood for Domain Keys Identified Mail. The idea is behind both sender policy framework and DKIM are that, that it's possible for a generator of email, someone who's going to be doing mailings, 
And of course, all these companies do. Facebook wants to send email and LinkedIn and AOL and PayPal and so forth. And they don't want to, they don't want it to, to trip over spam filters because, you know, one of the, one of the consequences of the spam problem we're having to see is, you know, and you see this all the time is people saying, well, you know, we've just sent you email. If you don't get it, please check your spam folder because we really did send it and, you know, you really do need it. So it would be nice if there were a way for valid mail to authenticate itself in a way that spammers could not duplicate. And that's what this te- what the, that's what these technologies provide. And the, this this DMARC, DMARC is is pulling this together under a single umbrella, essentially. Um, and DNS. This is another example of a benefit of DNS, why we really need DNS not to be spoofable, is that that someone who's sending mail will be able to add some records to DNS such that somebody who is receiving the mail from a given domain can ask the DNS system for the data that's necessary to verify that this mail was actually sent by the person controlling that DNS information. Since the owner of the domain is hopefully the only one controlling the owner, the, 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 is the only one controlling the, the information that their DNS servers are providing, this, this provides essentially the necessary crypto information for verifying the sender of email. So this has been a long time coming. It's great that it's going to be pulled together under a single umbrella. And uh, we'll do a podcast before long to explain how it all works in detail. Good. And you you support SPF. You've Somebody's saying that you've had an SPF record on your server for some time. Yeah, like years. Yeah. Yes. And it turns out it's very easy to do. Not, not difficult at all. Uh, the domain keys is a cool technology that I want to uh, add. And, and I think it makes sense to do, to do all of that. Great. Okay. Now. Now. <clears throat> the webcam nightmare. <laughs> Quick, give me the search time. engine. I want to find it before people realize this is going on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a random hacker who's pretty good at his craft, owned a, uh, a, a TrendNet webcam, T-R-E-N-D-N-E-T, TrendNet webcam. And as are all these things, they're, you know, they're, it, it's, you know there's going to be Linux inside somewhere, and that means there's a file system because this thing's got a little web server in it. And so it's remotely accessible over the web. You can log into it with your browser and it, you know, brings up a little configuration page, much like a one of our standard internet routers does. And you give it a username and password, because of course you don't want everyone able to log into your webcam. And if you then you you can put it on the net or you can map port 80 through in order for for you to access this remotely. And so when you're out traveling around and you want to check on whatever the camera is aimed at, 
you you browse to your IP address, and when you attempt to connect, you get challenged by a standard you must provide a, a, a username and password uh, authentication challenge. And when you provide that, then oh, look, there's a window showing you what your webcam is seeing in real time. So this guy um, just dis- he di- he just opens up the file system. And there are tools now for parsing firmware-based file systems. Lots of tools, actually, that, that router hackers use in order to, you know, do things like create the tomato firmware and, and, and so forth. They want to pull apart what's, what, you know, Cisco has provided, see what's there, understand how it goes together, and then, you know, add their own functionality and, and replace things. And then you can even rebuild these file systems and then reflash them so that the router doesn't know any different. So this hacker, he looks at the file system, uh, sees some of the files, and notices in the root of the file system, um, or I guess it's under a directory called A-N-O-N-Y, short for anonymous, Mm. (laughs) A-N-O-N-Y. He sees a a CGI script, Uh mjpg, M-J-P-G dot CGI. And so he, you know, playing with his camera, he, he just calls it up. He puts in the URL of his IP 192.168.1.17 in this case, slash Anani slash MJPG.CGI. And not surprisingly, lo and behold, he's looking at in real time what his webcam is showing him. So... Just sort of for grins, he thinks, I mean, it occurs to him, wait a minute, I just brought this up and I wasn't challenged for a username. Because normally when you go to a web server, you know, you put in google.com slash, what your browser is doing is asking for the root of, you know, the, the root URL, the root path to the server. So that would be, 192.168.1.17. So if you just put that in, you're prompted for your username and password. And that's what anyone trying to get to it, either from inside the network or out on the internet, would have to do. But when he put in the, the, the exact path to this CGI script, it didn't ask him. Turns out it never asks. Yeah. Even if you're on the internet, it's no different. The web server in the camera doesn't know where you're coming from and doesn't care. So it turns out that the internet is filled with there, and there are it's it's it's, the the manufacturer said, well, oh, probably not more than fifty thousand webcams, (laughs) where if instead of just going to the IP, you go to the IP slash. A-N-O-N-Y slash M-J-P-G.C-G-I, you don't have to authenticate. Hmm. And it shows you right that's con- then. That's convenient. Yeah, it's so handy. It's much easier <laughs> to just create a shortcut, you know, a little, you know, on, on your browser. So then our illustrious hacker uses an, a really clever new search engine that's been around for almost two years. The They're, they're celebrating their two-year anniversary a little prematurely, because the domain name was registered 10 days from today, 
two years ago, February 18th, 2010. Mm. There's a, a cyberpunk uh, uh, online real-time game called System Shock yeah. and System Shock 2. Yeah, good game. The, yes, the, the, uh, the entity, the automated entity in, in System Shock is known as Shodan, S-H-O-D-A-N. That's an acronym for Sentient Hyper-Optimized Data Access Network. Well, there is now a web server called, or a website called ShodanHQ.com. So, Leo, go to www.shodanhq.com. And everybody else don't. Okay, go ahead. Because <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, they will. Oh, too bad. We're going to bring it right down, I'm sure. Okay, so now, Leo, yeah, yeah. Uh, you should see a little search box. I will as soon as everybody stops going there. Oh, um, <laughs> you want to put in, just put in something that real I... Real slow, real fast. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Put in what, what I have something in my own web server headers, GRC slash IIS. Okay. Uh, and yeah. give me so a moment. You, it's still coming up. <laughs> you know what, Steve? You're just gonna have to describe it because it's not. Okay. It's not gonna come up. Okay, you can do it after a while. We broke. So, and everybody at Shodan is going, "What the hell? Yeah, what's all this traffic?" Okay, <laughs> okay so here's what Shodan is. Shodan is a hacker's dream come true. Oh, neat. Yes, it is neat. This thing is a search engine for all. Of the the um, the connection headers mm. that servers all over the internet generate. Mm. When when you connect to a web server, you get back its you know uh, hi there. This is what I am. Uh, this is the type of web server I am. Uh, here's what I know. If it's if it's if it wants you to provide authentication, it'll challenge you. Uh, and and ask you for the so-called the realm um, w w with a www hyphen authenticate header. Um, when you uh, connect to an email server, it it responds with you know its identity, often its version number, and so forth. Um, same thing with telnet servers that 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 respond with a tell uh, you know respond to a connection with a response most. Most servers on the internet, when you connect to them, because in, in once upon a time you would like telnet to something, and so you would just give it the IP, and as you know, Leo, it would respond with a you know a couple lines of greeting saying this is where where you have connected to, and often the the make model version of the server that server software that, that you're using. This ShodanHQ.com site has indexed all of that. As a consequence, it has indexed all of the TrendNet webcams that are on the Internet. <laughs> and if you search for simply NetCam, N-E-T-C-A-M, um, it is a... Case insensitive search. So you could put in capital N netcam. There are other netcams that use the, the, the basic realm netcam. The lowercase netcam 
are the TrendNet netcams. You will then find 2,734 of these in the U.S., 1,309 in Germany, 961 in France, 717 in Hong Kong, 620 in Mexico. Just shy of 10,000 IP addresses of TrendNet webcams, any of which you can log on to and see what the webcam is seeing by putting in the IP address slash Anani slash mjpg.cgi. So this is, this is a, so handy. This is <laughs> this is a disaster. Yeah. Oh goodness. Wow. Um, so Shodan HQ is kind of cool. If you put in GRC slash IIS as your search, you'll see six IPs of GRC web servers that uh, I run um, that respond with that as part of their header. And you can put in, you know, Cisco stuff or, you know, random, I mean, Linksys stuff. I mean, anything. This thing is just, it's really a very cool search engine for, for anything that responds when you connect. I think you can only do web unless you subscribe. But after you get a subscription, then you can do things like telnet searches to search for telnet servers and, uh, you know, get up to all kinds of mischief. So if anybody happens to have a TrendNet webcam or you know anybody who does, you want to make sure, well, you actually, you just, you can't use it. Um, this was the latest, the latest version of firmware, by the way. The company, TrendNet, is scampering around, as you may imagine. The problem is very few people register their TrendNet webcams. Right. So they don't have the email addresses of right. the owners of these. And there's no way to notify them by their IP address, which now the world has since this ShodanHQ.com uh, search system is able to find all of the TrendNet webcams since they're just little servers there that say NetCam in their headers when you attempt to connect to them. Oh, goodness. Anyway, so there, there will be firmware updates if you do have TrendNet webcams or you know somebody who does. Um, Take them off the net right now until you update them and make sure that they solve this problem. Um, and, you know, whoops, uh, very clever, interesting little hack uh, with some, you know, serious privacy consequences. Anybody who's aiming their camera at something sensitive and hoping or assuming that their authentication is providing them with enough security, um, uh, it's not the case. Not good. But I do have something that's good. Yes. I got email on the 5th, which was what, three days ago, from a Craig Thompson who uh, sent uh, email to my sales email address and Sue bounced it to me saying, Spinrite 6 saves clients' files. And he said, hyphen again. And he said, while I've been using Spinrite for several versions now and have managed, which means a long time because we know I don't do versions often, um, and have managed to recover files from seemingly dead drives in the past. This weekend's experience was by far the best. I'm a small, one-man computer business, so quality, affordable utilities are a must for me, and Spinrite has paid for itself over and over again. 
a client dropped off an external hard drive that had died. She was crazed as she stored, instead of backed up, numerous important files to this drive. Losing it all would have been devastating. After trying a number of other quick fixes, none of which worked, including a relatively simple level two Spinrite scan, I finally opted as a last resort to run it up to a 18-hour level three scan. After running all day and night, I reconnected the drive to my system and voila, all of the folders and files suddenly reappeared. I'm copying off now to return her files to her. I'm ecstatic that I was able to recover this data for her and she's ecstatic that she didn't lose everything. In fact, she didn't lose anything. All due to the continually outstanding utility Spinrite. While the cost of this app may seem a little steep for small-time people like me, it's well worth the investment, and my clients couldn't agree more given the results. Thanks very much, Steve, and everyone else at GRC for such an outstanding tool. Very sincerely yours, Craig Thompson. Happy, so, happy day. Thank you, Craig. Yes. So uh, I don't have an ad, so if you want, we can launch right into Scripno. I want to tell everybody about Scripno indeed. Yeah. Um, it is as easy to install as any Chrome extension can be. Uh, you just search for uh, Scripno. In fact, you, if you search Google for Scripno, uh, you'll find a couple references to it and, and can locate it quickly. Um, uh, Andrew Young is Scripno's author, who is a recent honors graduate with a Bachelor of Commerce in Business and Technology Management. I, I like his, his own site is Andrew, A-N-D-R, instead of E-W, he does Y-O-U. So A-N-D-R-Y-O-U.com, um, which is kind of fun because his last name is Young. And so that's the, you know, the first four letters of his first name, the first three letters of his last name that make Andrew spelled differently. So, and that's his Twitter handle also. So as I mentioned before, he was originally using Firefox, Opera, and Chrome. And Firefox 4 drove him nuts as it drove me nuts. And as many people have reported because of its horrendous memory leaks. And, you know, most recent reports are that even though they're now on Firefox 27, um, I'm not. I'm kidding. Of course, it's, I think you know. I believed you for a second. <laughs> I know. Oh yeah. I think, really? I think 27. Wow. That's, that's they're, on, a, they're on 10 or something. They'll be at 27 soon. Don't worry. Well, 12 is projected for April. So uh, yeah, they, they still. This really seems to be causing a problem. And I'm, you know, I love Firefox. I'm still using it as my primary browser. One of the things that has kept me from moving to Chrome is that I just didn't feel like I had the instrumentation that I liked, that I've gotten used to, thanks to NoScript running over on Firefox. You know, I, and, and, you know, I've, I'm, one of the reasons I don't use Chrome more is I sort of only use it when something doesn't seem to be working right with Firefox or, I don't know, I want more compatibility. Sometimes I've had problems playing videos in Firefox for whatever reason, and, and so I'll just jump over to Chrome and, you know, it always works in Chrome. Um, so I, I was missing this feeling of knowing what, a, what's going on with a web page. Um, if a web page is having problems, I can, I can click on my, on the little icon on my toolbar. 
under Firefox and, and see an enumeration of all the other domains which are trying to provide stuff to this page and kind of look at them and go, eh, I don't think so. Or, you know, or say, yeah, okay, or trust them briefly, you know, trust them just for now and so forth. Well, there was something called NotScript, which I got excited about some time ago until I tried it and I immediately removed it. It just, it was low function, didn't do what I wanted. You know, it just, it wasn't a replacement for no script. Well, we have one now called script no uh, for Chrome. Um, and it's, it's under continuous um, development. I suggested a couple things in my email conversation just yesterday with, with Andrew. Uh, one being that he blocks by default, he blocks the no script tag, which is the text which shows when scripting is disabled. And it's very handy. It's one of the ways that websites can say, and I'm sure people who use NoScript over on Firefox have seen this often, which is, you know, a little, a little bar will show or something will happen saying this site requires scripting for its full function. And of course, as my own work has moved more towards scripting, like with Off the Grid, which is local JavaScript and the Password Haystacks page. If you try to bring up the Password Haystacks page with scripting disabled, I give you a nice banner explanation of why just, you know, GRC in general doesn't need scripting, but this page specifically is a scripted page because of the features that it offers. So it's not like I'm just, you know, obviously forcing people to be using scripting all the time. I haven't gotten to that level yet. Um, but certain pages that have a use for scripting need it. So anyway, the point is that he agreed. He says, oh, he says, yeah, in the next release, I'll I'll turn that off by default. And that seems like a, a good thing. But um, in general, the, the add-on is enabled by default. Um, it's set to block unless you permit. So, you know, that's the technology that we learned works with firewalls and works with security is by default you say no and then you selectively enabled. Um, he's got essentially all the features that you need in a script blocker, meaning that you can do, you, you can do selective blocking and unblocking of specific domains you get the enumeration of all the things that the page is trying to do to you. Um, you can temporarily enable so that you're not filling up your whitelist with an endless list of junk, like site, sites you had to enable in order to use it, but, you, you, but you're never going to go back to it, so why keep it around? So that's one of the things. I mean, I'm all, always over on Firefox. I'm, I'm using the temporarily allow scripting on sites that, I know I'll, you know, I'm just there for some one-off purpose. Why add that to my permanent whitelist? So, so he, he has that. He also does something for those of us who really care, which Firefox NoScript doesn't, which is in the enumeration of the domains that are, that are involved in the page, the main page you're going to, it'll show you how many things, how many assets of what sort 
that domain is trying to load. And if you hover your mouse over the domain name, up pops a tooltip showing you the asset type and the URL, which is lots of nice information. You, it, again, it helps you to go a little bit further in, in understanding, well, okay, what is it that this domain is trying to load? Is it just an image or is it JavaScript? You know, you can't tell that over on Firefox with no script. With script no, it's easy to, to, to see that. And he has another very cool thing that I like is um, he has a, um, uh, a reputation button um, that is also there. You're able to turn it off if you don't want to run with it on. Uh, he calls it ratings. And it takes you over to the social networking uh, web of trust site automatically for the for the domain that you're asking for a rating on. So if you see something, you know, some, and I have just in the time that I've been using it, you know, uh, something or other dot F-M-Q-O-D-T dot com. It's like, well, what the heck is that? And so you can right then just click on rating and you'll quickly see, and in that, in, in the case of the thing that I clicked on that was an acronym like that, it I came up red screen and it said, this is a, you know, is a, a mistrusted site that is not liked by people. And of course, then I clicked on grc.com because I was curious what it said and it's like a, all green and, and happiness there. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the same thing w- w- would happen with Twit. So, you you can then well, I don't know about that. Can, <laughs> I wouldn't no, go too, cool, sure would. too crazy. So, uh, you know, you can block scripts, objects, embedded objects, iframes, frames, applets, audio, video, no script tags, and images. Images are allowed by default, and no script tags will soon be allowed by default. As I said, the rest. By default, are not allowed for things that are blocked. But then, when you allow them, uh, and you, you, it all, he also does a, a nice thing. For example, sites that use lots of subdomains, like Google, has you know, like subdomain du jour. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I I was forced over on Firefox to stop using um, uh, Certificate Patrol was that Google's got different certificates. And seems to just in, just generate subdomains on the fly, so it'll just be random stuff. Google. Com and Certificate Patrol. It says it had a wildcard system, but it, I could never get it to work. Where it was like trust everything that is underneath Google. Well, Script No does that, so you're able to you're able to allow, which is the the option for allow just exactly this domain, or you can say trust which says essentially allow everything under the root domain. So, you know, anything.grc.com, not just www, but it would also allow then media.grc.com and other, for example, in the case of GRC, others of my subdomains. And again, that means you don't have to have individual whitelist listings for everyone and you're not having to constantly be, be permitting other instances of subdomains. So, you know, that's a, a very nice feature. He also automatically pulls, there, there's an option under privacy settings for blocking unwanted content, as he calls it. And he pulls from um, a bunch of known ad and malware domains gathered from the MVPS hosts, HP hosts, which are ad and tracking servers, Pete Lowe's hosts project, 
malwaredomainlist.com and uh, the DNS-BH, which is a malware domain block list. So his, his utility is also pulling from a bunch of known, uh, a bunch of lists of known problems, and he absolutely, you know, keeps those blocks blocked for you. <laughs> also, he has an option that I also appreciate. He calls it antisocial mode, which is disabled by default, but he recommends it, and I like it. It removes all of those social widgets and buttons, even if the site is whitelisted. So things like the Facebook like and the you know the Twitter and the Google Plus buttons, which are are appearing more and more. I mean, those are just not things that I use, and so you can turn that antisocial mode on and be antisocial, and it, you won't be seeing all of that stuff. And of course, remember that all of the things that are blocked are things that that never have to be loaded. Um, the one of the reasons that it's been difficult for for add-ons to be created for Chrome is that Google has been only slowly creeping forward the API that allowed more powerful add-ons or extensions, as, as Google calls them, to be added to the browser. It is, you know, part of the sandboxing approach has made it difficult because individual tabs or pages run in their own processes. So you need some sort of cross-process reach that's much more difficult to do with that per you know, process per page model than it is in Firefox, where it's just all lumped in a single pr- uh, process from, from from an actual standpoint of of getting access to the page contents. And um, Google also, or uh, the the Chrome API is is still has some things which it doesn't allow. So so an app like Scriptno. And and through Andrew's research, he's able to block most things, but there are some things that cannot today be blocked. So he has to wait until the page comes in and then remove them dynamically from the page. That's that's technology over time that's going to evolve. In fact, he mentioned last night that there are two new APIs which he's he can't wait to have access to, which are currently in beta for Chrome. And as soon as they stabilize and and go mainstream he'll be able to use those in order to evolve script no further but you know bottom line is oh he also removes web bugs that's an option that's enabled by default and you can turn it off and he says he just removes invisible third party elements you know things that are there just for tracking and it's interesting because as i've poked around the net I, and this thing has identified web bugs for me. I've hovered my mouse over, you know, and I can see the URL. And it's like, oh, sure enough, look where that's going off to. Somebody, you know, somebody on that page deliberately planted something just for the purpose of tracking me. Oh, and speaking of which, another option is removing the referrer tail from non-trusted sites. So if you click some, if you click on a link that takes you to a site that Scriptno is not trusting, it will, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, I think it replaces it with something like no referrer. So it does put a little tag in just to say, you know, I've removed something, but that if, you, if it didn't do that, it would be sending that site that you don't trust, as we know, the entire URL appearing up in the browser's um, title of the page that you're coming from. So that's a nice little uh, privacy feature. 
Um, and of course, he also allows you to export all of the settings that you have customized over time and import them. So you're able to move them to a different instance of, of Chrome running on a different machine. And the same thing with your whitelist and blacklist settings. So essentially, we have now on Chrome a state-of-the-art, very nice-looking, ple pleasant-to-use uh, script controller on the, you know, on a par with, with uh, what we've had for NoScript. And uh, I'm really pleased. I wanted to make sure all of our listeners knew because I know a lot of them are going to enjoy this level of control. And if you, if you like it, if you uh, get a chance, drop Andrew a couple bucks. He's got a, a donation button, a little heart icon on his pages. And he said, support, he says, he says, support Andrew's existence and sustenance. Um, and that, in fact, that's how we struck up a dialogue was I sent some money to him because I definitely want him to know that this thing matters. And uh, in fact, supporting him would be a, a one way of saying, yes, 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 please keep working on this. This is important. We need this for Chrome. Um, it really is how I feel. Neat. I just downloaded and installed it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty and nice and, and, and works. And it, I'm sure we'll be getting features. And he's very responsive to feedback, too. So if you see things that uh, or have ideas for it, let him know. Yeah. Looks good. Looks really good. Yeah. Going to be a nice, I nice know you're thing not. I know, you, I know you're not a big script blocker. <clears throat> well, because it just and I screws everything up. And I understand that, but I, I uh, believe me, I know how many people are going to be delighted uh, that uh, that we have this capability uh, for when you want it for Chrome. Yeah, I'm just looking at all my sites. Of course, then there's lots of little things on there because we use a lot of JavaScript and things like that. Flash, yeah. you know, turn it, 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 it You can it trust our neat. sites. It's a nice little auditing tool too. You can it really is. see all the stuff it going is. It's on. It's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking at, like, for instance, my, uh, you know, I, I thought Facebook was bad. Then I went to my site, and I, <laughs> it's quite a long list of things, <laughs> APIs. There's Google. There's Facebook. There's Widgets Plus. There's Twitter. There's QuantServe. There's Widgets Server. It adds up, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, these are all the yeah. little doohickeys I'm running on the on the 15 of them. Oh, boy. There, was, there were only two on the Facebook site. Trust, trust, trust. Now, if I if I click trust, it trusts it forever, right? It's not just for now. Correct. Yeah, but if I say allow, that's just the temporary one. No, there's a temp button. If you look down, down uh, lower, yeah, allow allow uh -huh. is allow is just the exact URL dom the, the exact domain. Got it. That that, that you're at. For example, live.twit.tv is different than twit.tv. Right. If, if so if you do allow, it only allows that one that one ex explicit domain. So you want to do trust because you trust everything that is twit.tv. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> Who knows what they've been doing. <laughs> Very good stuff. It's free but yep. of course support the uh, author as always. It's always a good idea. Yeah, I really do. do. Yeah. Um I, you know, I sent him $100 which wow, sort of good, knocked good on over. You. But, yeah. well, I was able to do that because our listeners have supported me and, right. uh, and through Spinrite over time. Right. So I don't expect everyone to do that at all. You know, I thank everyone for their support of me and Spinrite. So I'm happy to pass that, pass that forward. Pay it on. Yep. Steve Gibson uh, is at GRC.com. That's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility and all his freebies as well, uh, including perfect paper passwords and all that fun stuff. Uh, he also put 16 kilobit versions of the audio up there for people who really don't have much bandwidth but want to listen. We all have uh, transcripts there as well. 
grc.com. Next week, we have a Q&A, so go there to ask questions. Don't email them to Steve. There's a feedback form. It's yes, grc. much better because yeah. Yeah, because then it's fun to know where people are, and email does, doesn't, um, you know, let us know where you are. So if you use the feedback form, you can say, you know, this is who I am and where I am and, and what accent you would like Leo to use for reading the question. <laughs> yes, we are taking requests. GRC.com slash feedback for that form. Uh, Steve will be back next week with a QA. and a uh, You can watch us do this live, 11 a.m. Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time at twit.tv. It's 1900 UTC. But if you miss it, we've, you know, got audio and video of, uh, of the show. Watch it in a format you prefer. Twit.tv has them, grc.com as well. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you uh, next week. Thanks, Leo. On Security Now. Security Now.